and we're recording. We're live. We're alive. We are alive and alive. And we are alive unlike many of the people at the end of that movie. Whew. Anyway, season's bleeding. We're talking about some... That was unexpected. Well, we're in Creepy Santa's workshop. It is, it is I. We. We us. We us. We us will speak on Prime Evil. Ho, 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 ho. We're here talking about Prime Evil with me, Snow Lietta, and my big brother, Jason. Howdy. Jason Michaelich. That's me. You may probably not know me from another Split Tooth podcast called Synesthesia. Mm-hmm. A podcast so nice we had to name it something that is impossible to pronounce. That would be too... A name so nice you can't say it twice. You can say it as many times as you want. You just... It, but it's You'll hard. say it very badly. Like I do. Synesthesia. Synes- did I say it right? Is there a right? There is a right, but it's just... The way to do it is to just say the word synesthesia. Synesthesia. What trips you up is trying to pronounce the visual play on words. Because it's a good choice for a podcast to have a visual play on words that isn't audible. <laughs> that was a very a very fine choice. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about no. my other podcast. No, we're not. Um, we are here to talk about Primeval. Primeval. Primeval 1988 is a super low-budget horror movie by uh, low-budget auteur Roberta Findlay. Uh, Who I'm not very familiar with, but after this movie, I want to get real familiar with Roberta Findlay. Oh, I want to get real familiar with Roberta. Real familiar. Real familiar. Ho, 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 ho. Um, sorry, I you invited me onto your nice holiday podcast, and now I'm just turning it into like a terrible zoo crew show. Creepy Santa. That said, comes in on my lap, Roberta Finlay. <laughs> Is uh, she still alive? Will she listen to this? Uh, she might still be alive. So here's the thing. I'm sorry if you're still alive and you're listening to this. We love you. I am not sorry if she's still alive. That's a weird thing to say no, to someone. No, no, I'm not sorry. She, I'm sorry about the listening to us. Well, Roberta, part. I am sorry you're still alive. Harsh. Way harsh. <laughs> I've got big brother energy going on in this <laughs> recording. Um, I don't actually know a lot about her. I did not even know. Or I think I knew and forgot and then found out again, maybe. Mm. When we started the film, and it said directed by Roberta Findlay, we were both like, whoa, hey, we picked a movie directed by a woman because it's 2022 and that's still, like, weird and cool. Um, Yay. Yay. Yay, people. Um, But it is not that common to find, especially, like, a gory... Oh, it's not that gory, but sort of... You you know what I mean? The... uh, disreputable horror films from the 80s that uh, are made by women and this is not just directed by a woman she wrote it she shot it and Mm -hmm. she edited it she is a genuine auteur Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean you said it's not that gory but it is like a pretty intense like things are happening all the time and death is happening all the time movie i i think really the distinction i'm drawing is that it doesn't have 
partially due to its low budget and I guess probably due in part well it may be in part to some of Finlay's choices but I would guess it's mostly due to not having one of the like 70s and 80s gore technician wizards like mm. she doesn't have a Tom Savini mm. uh, to to make stuff happen although so, for not having a wizard they made a pretty great monster that opens up the oh. movie i remember we started watching the movie and you were like i like this movie after two seconds because of the monster oh yeah and i was not wrong no like this it was great he set he set the tone yeah i there were just it's one of those movies where right in the opening credits they make excellent choices and her excellent choice was to have a really gnarly looking demon model just kind of snarling while the title burned. Great choice. Yeah. You've got me. I'm, yeah. a, I'm with you. And he looked kind of like a slimy womb creature monster, but like in a cute way. Like, you know. He's very. He was very like very red and bloody. Sinewy. And yeah. Yeah. And like that bright red fake blood color. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Again, he was great. One of those beautiful things owing probably to budget, but whoever they got to sculpt it really didn't make a movie monster they made a sort of fleshy body sculpture that happened to be a monster yeah um, and he only shows up twice unfortunately but yeah great. but also you don't want to overuse that too it much that's I mean, true that's true could i watch 90 minutes of that monster walking around yes i could I would. would you i would you would okay. um that said i totally get just sort of using it as a grace to know. Yes. Uh, I'll give the 30-second version of the tiny bit I know about Roberta Finlay. Again, beware the fool with a tiny bit of knowledge. That's me. Um, she is a very underknown, underappreciated filmmaker who started her work, uh, started working in film with her husband, Michael Finlay, uh, in like early violent sexploitation films. She then later on, I think without her husband, or with and then maybe without, uh, I know with she she became him. with or without him. With or without him. Oh, I make film with or without, without him. Thank you. But uh, she became uh, like a fairly, I think, visible figure in the adult film industry after the sexploitation film. And then after that, decided to, for mainly commercial reasons, I think. Like, And when I say commercial reasons, I don't mean like she was going to get a bunch of money. I just mean she wanted to keep working and keep making movies and thought, hey, I could probably get some money at, to make some low-budget horror films that could also maybe make some money and then get to make more films. And that's what she did. And that was the last sort of chapter of her career, mm. as I understand it. Yeah. Now, the reason I think she might still be alive is because her film, some of her films have been recently re-released on Vinegar, Vinegar Syndrome? Vinegar? Vinegar Syndrome. A fine boutique uh, Blu-ray and DVD house mm. puts out awesome weird trash that is uh, forgotten but shouldn't be and I think they put out Primeval actually on Blu-ray with another film of hers Lurkers and here's the exciting part she does a commentary track so <gasps> I wait on both I don't know 
but I know that she does commentary. So I'm going to get that because I want to hear what she has to say. I'm also really curious to see because some of those visual choices are interesting in the movie. And I'm curious to see if the transfer would make a difference. Oh, about some I'm of how it sure reads. it would. Uh, we watched this on a... What I'm guessing is a VHS transfer to YouTube. We did not see this film in a pristine form. Not that it was probably ever a pristine film, but I'm very interested to see what it looks like because, bringing it back around to Roberta Finlay, um, as I said, she is, she is underappreciated, underknown, um, but I think, based on just watching Primeval, uh, super interesting. Filmmaker. Yes. Uh, with actually a really, I don't want to say developed, I, I don't know what adjective I want to use. I don't want to just say interesting again because yeah, you know, it's a cop-out word. But there's something about her visual sense and her visual uh, experimentation and storytelling that you can see why she, she's, when she's ever talked about or when she has ever been talked about prior to the last like five, ten years. She's been talked about as like the the lowest of the low direct filmmakers of just like this is the bottom barrel of trash movies that you can watch. You know, total these are incompetent, commercially just pumped out three dollar movies. And there are aspects of the film where I can understand where people can think that because there are very jarring and strange choices being made and I'm sure we'll talk about some of them but I think that is outweighed by the uh, sort of verve and intensity and strangeness in a good way of a lot of her visual choices and even some of those quote bad choices or incompetent choices to me actually point towards very interesting ways of watching the film a lot of the time um Mm. but i was shocked how little or how hard it is actually to find stuff on her uh one marker for me of just how underknown she is is i have a book that i go to when i'm reading about up on trash cinema uh it's one of my favorite Tomes. Uh, it's a book by Stephen Thrower called Nightmare USA. It's the, the story of the exploitation independence in America. Mm. And it is a gigantic book with a huge array of films and types of films and filmmakers that Thrower talks about. And he is a huge proponent of watching films that would otherwise be dismissed as bad or incompetent and really embracing the things they're doing as if that's what they're supposed to look like and experiencing them through those kinds of aesthetic eyes. And I bring up this book, one, because it really informs the way I watch these kinds of films, but the other because there is almost zero mention of Roberta Findlay in the book. There, I think she appears in the index twice, and it's in reference to a film that she acted in for her husband and that film doesn't even get a full write-up so in the book that is the place where all of the people that nobody talks about get talked about she's not even talked about there i feel like we found a hidden gem um wow so primeval is the story of a satanic cult that 
is has existed for thousands of years and survives off of people sacrificing their family members. And we follow them as they are trying to sacrifice a young woman, Alexandra, and everyone around her starts mysteriously dying or disappearing. Um, it also is the story of the first story. I feel like she probably has a series after this of the undercover nun who goes undercover to infiltrate the cult. Yeah. Well, yeah. what would you say? It, is this the story of a cult? Is this the story of Alexandra? Is this the story of an undercover nun? I would say this film, like many of my favorite genre exercises, is really hard to pin down what it is the story of because it's just a story that has stuff happen and then stuff keeps happening and then eventually it stops. And that is one of my very favorite ways for specifically like a trash genre film to exist because it means the filmmakers are not getting wrapped up in traditional screenwriting structure and finding their inciting incident and their characters arc. They're just trying to get stuff out. And they're yeah. just trying to be like, hey, look at this. Oh, man. Oh, did you think about this? Oh, whoa. What if this happened? Oh, man. Oh, and then this. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. So one of the things that happens is uh, <laughs> very quickly at the beginning of the film, um, the cult kills an older priest who maybe discovered they were operating nearby in New England. And then uh, the bishop uh, talks to a nun who saw that he died and she reveals that she has knowledge about this cult because the cult content warning, trigger warning, uh, (laughs) the cult with the uh, excited, I don't even know how to describe it. Her mother sex trafficked her to the cult when she no, was she younger? No, I thought she was going to get sacrificed. No, no. Remember, she got. She said they used her. She was one of the, like, extra, like, in oh. when at, at the sacrifice at the end, there's the one person who sacrificed, but then there's also all the rest of the ladies that the evil priest has hypnotized just, so that the cultists can have a big orgy with them. She I was one of I just thought that she was going to get sacrificed because her mom needed a blood relation. I but, don't But now, now I'm not sure. I did not read the used that way. But but it I seemed, but it tracks the way she says it. It did it did I yeah. I was wondering about it. Why they chose that language and so I'm not I'm not not with you. Yeah. I guess but I just hadn't thought about it that way. Where we reveal or bring up that this is a movie that is 100% about female trauma. Mm-hmm. And specifically female, like, adolescent trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly suppressed memories, because it's not, like... It's not the, the like, repressed memories coming back thing. Yeah. But more, like, the, the difficulty of processing horrible things done to you when you are younger and the impact it has on you in your older life. Um, This is like a real runner in the film. Yeah, it really is. Um, Yeah, it's a real runner in the film. Um, There's that very awkward scene where the main character, not the nun, reveals that she was sex trafficked when she was a child into, um, I guess, child pornography. 
with another little boy and that ironically her grandfather saved her by sacrificing her father to the cult. Obviously she didn't know about the cult part. But what was interesting about that scene, well not that scene but that whole concept in the film is that you find out later like no one knows. Only her grandfather knows and the boyfriend she just chose. So she like lives with her mother and her mother doesn't know. Like so it is very much about that sort of repressed part of her life. Yeah and her mother is depicted as this sort of also deeply traumatized woman who self-medicates through severe alcoholism and who just carries around this deep hatred and guilt about her involvement with her husband and her husband's family that did this to their daughter. Whether she understands what really happened or not, she has this sense in her of like, something terrible happened and she feels like in part it's my fault because I had my daughter in this family uh, and she wants to protect her daughter but she really can't because she's too broken by all of it yeah and and her reaction is just to be like everyone over there is evil and she's not wrong (laughs) no she is in fact explicitly correct by the terms of the film (laughs) but it's not exactly helpful either the way she does it. Anyways, back to Undercover Nun. Undercover I want to talk about Undercover oh Nun. Undercover Nun is amazing. Uh, her eyebrow in that first scene is also amazing. I don't know what's going on with her eyebrow, but it's very high. So the this nun reveals to the bishop that she knows about this cult because, as I said, her mother sex trafficked them her to them. It's unclear whether her mother was actually in the cult. She wanted she to be, see, at she least. She wanted to be, maybe. It was like a, an offering... The clarity of storytelling, not necessarily what this film is interested in, um, and to its credit, to be frank. Uh, but the bishop then sends this nun in to infiltrate the cult as a prospective cult member, which is such a strong choice. And honestly, should have been a larger percentage of the movie than it was. The bulk of the movie focuses on Alexandra, the soon-to-be-sacrificed new victim, uh, who, as you said, was also weirdly sex-trafficked by her father, who was then sacrificed to this cult by the grandfather who wanted to preserve her to sacrifice later. It's all very complicated, but honestly sort of works even better that way is this metaphor of like if you are in uh if you're in an abusive situation or horrible situation in your family and other family members sort of get you out of it but also they don't necessarily have your best interests at heart either so you know there there's layers here i feel like to unwrap in what findlay is presenting to us but that's the bulk of the movie undercover nun does not get nearly enough screen time should have been i would sign up for a full I would make a remake of this movie about the undercover nun. Yeah, let's do that. No. Okay, done. Let's make a movie. Um <laughs> uh you're gonna star as the undercover nun. <laughs> done. Get your eyebrows ready. Done. I'm getting my eyebrows ready. Yeah, no, and actually her storyline, like there's so many layers throughout the movie, like you were saying. But I feel like the layers that have to do with undercover nun 
and the conversations she has with that bishop and then with the priest who's actually the satanic cult leader. Father Thomas. Father Thomas. Oh my gosh, Father Thomas. We have to talk about Father Thomas, um, who's 3,000 years old, but looks very young and has very entrancing eyes. But yeah, Undercover Nun has these conversations that are really complicated. So first, when she goes and talks to the bishop and they're going to send her undercover, and this might be my like, witchy witch coming out because i'm a witchy witch but um the bishop kind of like describes it as like oh yeah they worshiped this pagan god with horns but then when she goes and talks to father thomas he talks about the fact that satan has more power on consecrated ground because he's a fallen angel and that they keep trying to bring them down but the church can't exist without them So it, like, brings home this, like, really, like, Satan is this Christian concept. And I loved that. Like, on second watch, it came home to me more where I was like, oh, they kind of mentioned this pagan god. But then the way the cult is, it's so Christian. They were like, we were almost a part of them. We were almost Catholic, but we just broke away and followed this angel instead. So what do you think of all that? What do you make of all that? I, I personally, I really like that everything you're saying is accurate and with the addition of the fact that even though they have branched off, you know, as they said, from the church, they're still operating officially within the church. Like they're a secret cult, but they are still priests in the Catholic church. And their little line about how the church can't exist without them. It I might be reaching, but I have no I have no idea what Findlay's experience with the Catholic Church was or if this came up at all. But, like, from this vantage point now, at the end of 2022, looking back at the Catholic Church, (laughs) um, and I don't think anybody is confused anymore about what kind of a horrible stuff that organization runs on. Uh... It would not take too much autobiographical like data points for me to say this film's a coded message about just what the Catholic Church is and mm-hmm. has been, yeah uh, in regards to the you know priest uh, abuse yeah uh, events yeah and I almost words. feel like okay so going back to Undercover Nun once again because maybe this podcast episode should just be called Undercover Nun. Um, she gets sent in by this bishop, but I feel like he's really manipulative towards her. And then she's like, you know, who who urges her to kill? <laughs> like, to murder her? It's not the satanic cult. Oh, I mean... <laughs> she infiltrates that cult, and I, fool that I am, was expecting some sort of, like, plan or manipulation that she would put into place... But no, she's just there and in the middle of the ritual just starts stabbing motherfuckers. <laughs> like Again, this is a character that, as you said, should have a whole series of films. Yeah. 
So as you said, the bulk of the film follows Alexandra. And Alexandra's the one who's going to get sacrificed. You know, spoiler alert, she's a virgin, she's young, she works saving prostitutes and poor people, you know, the usual sacrifice. Just another quick note. The fact that she's a virgin, obviously... Uh, significant for the satan to the satanist plot because they want to sacrifice the more pure the better um, you know under their yes. conditions um, or their understandings of that but also worth mentioning that along the lines of this film really like dealing with as I said like women's trauma in a way that films just I mean, mostly films don't do and certainly hadn't been 1988 and certainly not in a fun horror movie set around the holidays and I use fun loosely but like this was like you know a, a trash horror movie as you've been saying and, and but it deals with them in semi-deep ways yeah well I, it's just one of those things where like I don't think it was being dealt with on any level in film well I'm in commercial film, I should mm-hmm. say. I've always sort of that's implied because outside of commercial film, everything has been being done everywhere by amazing people. But um, the whole idea of her being a virgin is really, it's hammered home that she has a fiancé but will not sleep with him because she's so deeply traumatized by the sexual abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father. Yes. So it... Like, it doesn't really get any more pointed than that. <laughs> and it's an interesting, I won't say subversion, but it's an interesting addendum to the sort of classic trope of the virgin sacrifice to then make her being a virgin a part of this cyclical trauma that that everything is feeding on. Yeah, no, I, it points to the fact that this whole idea idea of virginity is abusive in itself but this is like a way to point that out to me so the whole idea of like purity and whatnot it it is you know it's in a sisterhood with the fetish i can never say this word fetishization right am i saying that right fetish pronounced the anesthesia (laughs) (laughs) the fetishization fetishization Fetishizing, sorry. Fetishized nation. Fet- fetishizing of you know, youth and virginity and purity and all of that, and so they go hand in hand. Um, yeah, no, it's a great twist actually. On the uh, the second watch of this movie, the first watch you get really jarred because there are these like crazy jump cuts and like just like things happening all at once, and it's a little hard to follow the first time through. Do you want to talk about the the first insanely confusing jump cut? Yeah, because we, well, we actually... had us debating. Well, I was with you at first. So, go ahead and so there's it. okay. We see a sacrifice early on, and it's the first sacrifice we get to see that the cult does, and it's someone sacrificing their daughter, who's like a young adult woman who's very pretty and like writhing, strapped on a table, about to be stabbed, kind of half out of it. And he, like, has to go through this whole rite and say, like, yes, it's my daughter. I'm sacrificing her to Satan and whatever. And then he stabs her. And we get this this close-up of her face with her eyes open and then it just cuts 
to this woman walking down a hallway in the current day. This woman, yeah, in modern dress in yes. like an urban building industrial building type of thing yeah Yeah. um the debate we had is if it was the same woman because i thought that maybe the sacrifices if they were pure enough or whatever got stabbed and became part of the flock of satan because they want to build their flock of satan yeah you had this amazing mind cannon addition to the like way that satanism and magic works in this movie and i 100% 100% like I support that as an idea however I did go and do the research and it was not the same woman which but disappointed me greatly I wish it had been because <laughs> what a great move to do I have to do this in a movie at some point it's like have somebody die brutally on screen and then literally in a in a smash cut have them be alive yeah no, and not it was to be great. A flashback, just to have it back. And but I was really hoping I, that's what I she had the, done. The first time I saw it, I also thought it might be the same woman, and I was deeply confused as to what was happening, <laughs> which is a pleasant sensation. I like that. Yeah. And not many movies do it. And not many movies do it well. And then that character goes on to be another one of my favorite parts of the film, Alison Dupre. How? I, Allison. Uh, We're just going to call her Allison. Allison the Satanist. But she's like a very cheeky Satanist who like won't sleep with the kind of stupid or greedy grandpa Satanist that's trying to sacrifice Alexandra and is like, but likes the charming, suave, smart Satanist cult leader and like jokes about how no one knows how old she is except for the devil. And she's just, you know. She's, like, kind of... She's competent. I feel like she's a really competent cult member. Like, she, like, gets the hit list done and, like, all the stuff. And, like, when one guy's like, can't he just talk to Satan? The grandpa's like, can't he just talk to Satan about that? She's like, that's not how it works. Like, what are you What are you talking about? Yeah, no, she, I really like her. She's a mover and a shaker. She's great. <laughs> um, she's a really good character. And you said, like, she really... She seems to, to like the Father Thomas figure, um, the the leader of the cult like she doesn't like him that much she's just like yeah he's fine yeah like, he's, he yeah. gets the job done he's got yeah. power he's cool i'll you know yeah she's I'm, not I'm like a that. fan but girl. she's not yeah she's not devoted to him she's just like no he obviously has more power than any of you so i'm gonna listen to him and then the yeah. grandfather figure who wants to sacrifice Alexandra is all full of... I I really love it, too. He's just this sort of slimy... I love to hate him. Weak, I just... I mean, sure, you could love to hate him if you want, but I just love his existence. Like, yes. I just really like when somebody is that just openly craven, I guess. And, and <laughs> he actor, certainly is. <laughs> maybe just due to, like, like I said, it being a low-budget film and the actor doesn't have... Or, you know, you're not getting movie stars for this you you have an actor who for whatever reason is able to convey the vulnerability of that role yeah like if you had a known actor in that they do things to make it clear that like they're cool they're just playing a weakling mm. but this actor is just like oh, oh, yeah. if know. he was a sound that's the sound he would be i think he makes um. that sound a few times <laughs> yeah I don't know. That's what it sounded like to me. That's what it sounded like inside Jason's head when this character was on screen. 
But he's trying to make all kinds of moves on Allison and be like, hey, look, I'm going to take over this call. You better get with me. And she's like, it's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. You're basically yeah. a wet frog in a suit. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? Yeah, he does have this interesting moment where he does seem extra weak because he, like, kind of feigns morality, which makes me think he's just really susceptible to his own weaknesses of, like, I want to be powerful. I want money because he's like, how dare my son exploit my granddaughter? But, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice her because I really don't want to die and I'm 80 years old. Or there's this great scene where he's talking to Alexandra's mother about getting Alexandra to move in with him because that's his whole plan is like I'm rich and I got a big house and Alexandra should live with me and then her mother's like no I don't like you and he's like well I'll kill you yeah but before then there's this great little scene where he's so he's he's looking at the ex-wife of his son who he had sacrificed to the cult, both to extend his own life and because his son was a horrible like monster that preyed on his granddaughter. Very complex motivations there. But he's sitting there with her, and he's like, trying to impress her, as if he still gives a shit what she thinks. It's like, you are in a centuries-spanning satanic cult you have delusions that you're going to take this over and be the most powerful member of satan's (laughs) but you still give a shit what your ex drunk daughter-in-law thinks of you like that is so obviously you have no ability no power no verb he's sitting there like i've never been what you'd call poor but i have an awful lot of money now huh and she's like i don't give a shit you suck (laughs) It's true. And meanwhile, you know, uh, Father Thomas, he's over at the fireplace talking to Alexandra and, like, completely wooing her. We should talk about him. And I really want to talk about the way that he's lit in this movie. Like how cool he is? No. Because he's real. I was thinking I should probably take some life lessons from him. Yes. Like how to carry myself, how to behave around women. Yeah. Yeah, no, you definitely should. And those eyes, how to hypnotize them, all good life lessons. But no, the way the way that um, I feel like the first time I watched this movie, I didn't know what the guy looked like half the time. And I loved it because he was this guy who was like, you know, uh, seducing these women and making them feel like they were like both loved, but also like freer, but also maybe he's luring them into a cult and he's supposed to have this weird elusive supernatural charisma and i thought it it worked really well for me and i don't know if it was accidental or not which is why i'm so interested to see the blu-ray and see if it changed it but like half the time his face is in shadow and this actor's face what is his name william beckwith thank you william beckwith his face is like a face to write home about. It's a solid face. Like, it's oh, yeah. very, um, his expressions. What is the word for it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, bay? <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> lit? <laughs> lit, but not lit. So lit that, not- no, no, that's the thing is he's lit, but not lit. Yeah. And right. that choice, 
was great to me because I feel like it like alluded to the fact that the attraction to him wasn't about the way he looked at all. It was this bizarre power and this just insane confidence he has for being 3,000 years old and being a badass and controlling everyone all the time. William Beckwith, charismatic AF, for sure. Um, I do think I also really liked that uh, visual presentation. (laughs) I will say I'm going to go with 90% certain that we were watching a exceptionally dark transfer that for whatever reason, as I said, however, it was either tra- telecinied or from VHS or whatever, the contrast was jacked up like 500. So I'm going to be really sad if I can see his face more when we watch it on Blu-ray. But it's okay. I'll still like seeing his face more. Maybe his expressions were so good it'll make up for it. I mean, I'm going to give room you for You see that. his face an awful lot, I feel like, even in the version we watched. You and do. he's great. And he is like, great. But no, we're introduced to Father Thomas in what, like the 14th century or 15th? I forget. What I know it's the 1300s at some point. Okay. But we're, yeah, we're introduced to him like storming a cathedral with his other satanic monk followers. And one of the priests is screaming at him that he'll excommunicate him. And then they just straight chop his head off. Um, in another one of the fil- the first of the films really uh, jarring cuts the way they handle the beheading and the more i've watched it the more i've grown to love it because it sort of seems like the guy's screaming and then there's a reverse shot and then there's an axe swinging and then the body falls the wrong way but then the head comes down from the other side and rolls across the frame it's like, i have to really? rewatch that i need a reminder it's on a that very dynamic and disorienting <laughs> in a way that whether it's intentional or not uh has won my heart <laughs> but yeah so then he's just like frothing at the mouth and then we see him leading a sacrifice and yeah he's a very intense presence and i think there's a reason why he's top billing because he really does tie the whole film together yes um, absolutely i mean him and the undercover nun yeah and undercover nun and him and undercover nun you know they meet head to head at the end there I'm so I'm but honestly torn. Both of them keep going on, so I like knowing that they're yes. both eternal. Oh my god, I hadn't even thought about that. That it could be an ongoing <gasps> nemesis he situation. He could be her Blofeld. And yeah, she could go after him because be they coming. both survive. Yeah, she's just going to like be hunting him down for the rest of time. Yeah, she life. did say it was her life purpose, that she was saved from the cult. She was like, I was saved for this purpose. I was gonna oh, say, I was going to say. I was going to say. I was going okay. to say that I loved Undercover Nun's initiation into the satanic cult where they had her smash a Jesus. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> she had to wash everyone's feet. Which, I mean, I guess the cult has a little love for each other. They care for each other once they're in the flock. You get your feet washed once in a while. And then she had to smash a Jesus and take off her clothes. And I just, yeah, that's, yeah. that was her. And then her reward is that she got to just, like, slit someone's throat and stab somebody in the back. It's great. <laughs> it's a good reward. I All right, to ra- I'm, oh, I'm sorry. torn torn between wanting the film to have featured her more prominently because I really did want to just watch her adventures and really kind of loving the fact that she'd be gone from the film long enough that I would start to wonder whether they were ever going to go back to her and then she would just show up in a scene and be like oh yeah she's in the cover <laughs> no I agree 
And I wonder if the ending would have been as good had she been in there long enough, because I wasn't sure if she was going to be the prominent part of the ending. And spoiler alert, she is. She stabs people. And yeah. And delivers the titular line. Oh, yes. The second titular line. It's primeval. I wanted to go back to this idea of incompetent choices, incompetence or choices, rather. I wanted to go back to (laughs) what in this movie overall did you feel like? What was the stuff that you felt like, ooh, this was a choice that I loved? And what was like, you know, things that you felt like were a little bit distracting or incompetent or didn't like bring you more into what you loved about it? It's a hard thing to answer because I tend to view films fairly holistically where if I have found a way into the film and a way to enjoy it, I don't generally divide things up in that way Mm. because the whole thing starts to speak to me in terms Mm. of the choices being made. I mean, I, I, I guess I could say if I'm trying to distance myself for a minute and be a proper critic, that there are... A very are... proper critic. We are proper critics here. Yes. There there are, are gaps in sort of the narrative coherence that don't necessarily feel intentional. Um, there are... Like, certainly, we, we talked about how the film plays a little bit loose with time, and I feel like that was on a macro and micro level, because I, at a certain point, I definitely got confused as to who was being sacrificed when because it's supposed to be every 13 years but ultimately i don't really care yeah um because if a film is doing something interesting and it tells me like i don't i don't care me if things neither. are sort of traditionally convincing i will just go with the film if it tells me, hey, mm. this is happening, I'm like, okay, great. That it, mm. I, I will give you that as a sort of positive reality so that I can move on to the next mm. thing you want to do. Um, but there are, like the, the cut that we talked about from the sacrificed daughter to Allison definitely just sat there confused for a minute. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And honestly, it, it doesn't take that much work to sort of start to spin that into a part of the film's approach to the shared trauma of women and the sort of like webs of connection uh, throughout all of these different stories. And that, yeah, that's true because the first time we met Alexandra, I also found confusing because that was a weird cut to one of her clients because she's like a social worker type of person who runs a shelter and helps women find work if they're coming out of like life on the streets in one way or another. And it jumps first to one of her clients and doesn't really explain who she is. But I appreciate a film like this that just keeps introducing new characters. Yeah. Like, that's, again, one of my favorite features of this sort of trash genre film. Like, is that, like I said, the plot just keeps going and they just keep bringing in new people. It's mm-hmm. like, here's a character. Here's a character. We need a character here. Right? Like, There's the so many characters. In, the, like, weirdo cop who comes in. And does the whole, like, well, three people have died, but it's probably not connected. The girl that stays with her at the end, but then never shows up again. She just kind of leaves. Yeah. Doesn't show up. Yeah, there's so many characters in this film. Yeah. 
That so is something I appreciate. Um, yeah. And I, I will say, I really do appreciate the sense of, the visual sense of the film. Like, mm-hmm. you can tell when you're watching it that there is a person who cares about looking at things through a camera. Yes. And that, I that is 100% one of the number one things I care about seeing in a movie. Yeah. Um, I see so many movies that are, you know, technically well shot, I guess, or, you know, they, they perform the storytelling function mm-hmm. that they have, but it never feels like anybody cares what the camera's really looking at. It doesn't feel like anybody really is interested in looking and it does feel like Roberta Finlay is interested in looking and the fact that by the end of the film I felt that way and then we saw the credits it was like director of cinematography <laughs> director of photography uh, yes editor all of them uh, I was like oh okay so this is she's she's looking through the camera she's I mean some of those great handheld shots like when the dying priest is walking through the snow at the beginning yeah or some of the sort of uh, there's a murderous handyman like a hulking murderous handyman and there's a couple of we never talked about the ben the murderous handyman i i guess i'd probably say like he's not a character i love uh sort of that felt kind of pro forma like well i guess this is what a horror movie needs so we'll put that in there but that said there's a a couple of scenes where he's like chasing down murder victims or kidnap victims and the way the camera moves during that actually brought me into the scene when I was totally tuned out. It's like, I don't really care about this. But then the way her camera's moving down hallways or, or getting back into corners, I thought was really affecting. Yeah. What if we just talk about what is the most Christmasiest thing about the movie? Yes. What and, is the most Christmassy thing? Interesting. I think it's probably the like winter carriage ride mm. that they go on, where she reveals it's Alexandra and her fiance, and she reveals her history of uh, horrible abuse. And I feel like they're passing by like decorations and they're talking about Christmas plans and that was mm-hmm. the one part of the movie where I felt very Christmassy. I mean, it's aside from the snow everywhere. Yeah, I agree. That was probably the most Christmassy moment in the movie. I think it gets rivaled by this whole idea that you need to be pressured to be supporting lonely family during Christmas <laughs> later during the movie, which is used to get her to move in with the murderous grandfather after her mother passes. But there is this whole like, Ooh, we have to go to the party. And the party vibe is very like, Ooh, we have to be here because it's the holidays. So that's a different kind of Christmas feeling <laughs> that those later scenes bring. Christmas in this movie is actually used as a weapon, which is something I have not seen very often. That is a very, very good point. Yeah, yeah. And with that, I think we should say Merry Creepy Christmas. Uh, and wish a season's bleedings. Ho, ho, ho. I can't do it. My suit used to be white. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> yeah. 
Merry Christmas, everyone, and to all a creepy night.